Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And to begin today, I'd like to thank two fellow saloners who have made direct donations to the salon to help offset some of our monthly expenses. And these two wonderful people are Justin E. and Apta G. I hope I pronounced that right. A-P-T-A, Apta G. That's a new name for me. Anyway, I really appreciate your donations. They're a big help. Additionally, I would like to welcome the following saloners as new supporters of my writing on Patreon. And they are Austin B., Davidas, did I get that right? D-O-V-Y-D-A-S, Davidas, Dovidas, sorry about that, Dovidas P., Andrew H., Wesley H., Austin B., Blake N., and Dan M. And this now brings us up to 106 patrons who collectively contribute $606 a month which means that we have now hit our first goal. And so I want to thank all of my monthly supporters as well, because, well, each month I've been using a little of their contributions here in the salon as well. And besides having their names placed in the front of my new books, as the patrons who are supporting the direct release of my new works into the public domain, well, I've been posting excerpts of one of my new books each week, as well as uh, posting some of the Terrence McKenna sound bites that I've collected over the years. Plus, uh, each Monday night, I open a Zoom conference where any of my patrons can join. Uh, and last night, we had a really interesting conversation in which uh, we talked about some of the high weirdness that can uh, often arise during a psychedelic experience. And uh, just so you know, uh, each week we have several saloners who aren't interested in adding to the conversation, but they show up and listen in. Uh, hopefully they're also getting some benefit from the time we all spend together online. And so far I haven't focused our discussions on Monday nights on anything in particular, but instead we just see where the conversation leads us. And uh, with an eclectic crowd such as ours, we've had some truly interesting discussions. Hopefully you'll be able to join us as well. It only takes a commitment of $1 a month to join in these weekly conversations and to access everything that I post on Patreon. And over time, I plan on making this the best dollar anybody spends each month, so I hope to see you there. And now let's join Lex Pelger as he introduces today's program. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Hello, everyone. We're coming near to the end of the psychedelic storytelling episodes from the Blue Dot Tour. Today is a double feature with the best stories from our early stops in Philadelphia and Baltimore. I feel that these stories are especially strong because both of these cities have a vibrant community gathering around psychedelics. You can feel the supportive atmosphere where people feel safe to share. A number of these tales today are cautionary. They contain reasons why these drugs need to be treated with respect and why they are not for everyone. As always, I feel like one can learn more about how psychedelics really work from these stories than from a whole pile of peer-reviewed literature. I know that both methods of approach are vital to the mainstreaming of psychedelics, but for those of us who are experienced, learning from the others seems like one of the richest ways to learn. I also know that some of you aren't into these episodes as much, so take heart, 
There's only one very special episode left. Then we'll have to wait until I go back on the road again with a baby strapped to my chest to have more of these events and more of these stories. And so that leads to an announcement that I have today from another papa, the gentleman behind the Psychedelic Anthology series, who goes by Eternum, which is Latin for eternity. He writes to us today, The Psychedelic Anthology is a seven-part anthology and collection of real-life psychedelic experiences shared from all over the world. This anthology challenges the negative stigma surrounding sacred medicines such as LSD, ayahuasca, and mescaline by sharing the very profound and transformative experiences that may occur while under the influence of these substances. The first two volumes have been released and are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Volume 2's introduction was provided by Dennis McKenna. I am currently working on Volume 3 and seeking stories as we speak. Deadlines for stories is July 31st, 2018. They must be a minimum of 1,000 words, and they can be submitted at thepsychedelicanthology.com. So I encourage everyone out there to please check out this collection. And now, on to today's stories. So my story begins in, I guess it was junior year of college. Um, my previous year of college dealt with a lot of uh, LSD and mushrooms, and uh, since I had moved to a, a high, uh, state college, uh, main campus of Penn State, I lost all my time at uh, connections. So I was looking for uh, other ways to cure this. And uh, I learned about ethnobotanicals, just the, the idea of, of legal alternative highs. So I went online and I bought like a giant starter pack. Uh, my whole kitchen table was full of everything from uh, San Pedro, my, uh, cacti to uh, at the time salvage derivative was still legal and uh, uh, Amanita Mascara Blue Lotus everything, you know, SS High Eyes everything so I was just experimenting with stuff uh, the masculine from the cacti was amazing gave me like, actually the first time I did it I had brain orgasms where I was sitting in the dark pondering the realities of the, the mysteries of the universe and every time I had a little epiphany, I could feel the different centers of my brain light up, and it felt like I was having an actual orgasm in that area. So that was neat. Um, the next, you know, the next weekend, I decided to do some uh, Amanita, and I wasn't quite sure about how much to do. I'd read about some some issues with uh, with the liver toxicity and stuff, so I went halves on it, and I should have went whole, but I went halves, and wasn't really doing anything. I waited two hours, three hours. Man, I should definitely be at least peaking by now and feeling something. So, that's what else do I have here? I would file through a drawer and I picked out the salvia derivium. So, I found the salvia. Now, I had a whole whole baggie uh, of different kinds. It was the, the leaf 5x, 10x, and 20x. And I was like, well, I smoked a lot, so I'm just going to try the 20x. So, I packed a uh, bubbler full. I went into the bathroom, turned the fan on, take my first hit. Right away, take a second one, hold it in, put the bubbler down, and I start feeling tingling in the back of my head. And I'm like, all right, cool, now we're getting somewhere. So I go sit on the couch, and just ready to wait for it to happen. As soon as I breathe out, I, uh, I feel a suction on my face. It was, instead of turning left, it was, it was a straight up and out, where I actually went, and um, next thing I knew, I was staring down at my body from the ceiling, and I was like, shh shit 
<laughs> and the weirdest thing was after I said shit, the uh, very naturally the uh, the next sentence was, I did this, I did it again. And I'm like, wait, what did I do again? How the hell do I? Why am I up here? How do I get back down there? And this whole whole instance was like it wasn't scary. It was more like uh, I had nothing to do. I was popped out of my body, and I'm standing there like, now what? I have I got nothing uh, until I, I realized right before I figured out how to get back in, uh, there was this very calming um, presence behind me, like a semicircle of very familiar people that like have your back. And I thought about for just a split second, and then all of a sudden it was like the planets aligned and I got sucked right back into my body. But on the way in, I wasn't coming from the ceiling anymore. I was coming from like what you would say outer space. I shot in through uh, like aerial view, I could see the entire town. I could see someone getting pulled over half a block away. I, I could hear, I could see like babies crying in a couple apartments over in the cribs. And it was just like, wham, I'm back in. And I was freaked. I, I feel the tingles. Yeah, like I'm going to fall back out. I'm not, I'm not anchored to my body yet. So I hopped up and uh, <laughs> ended up just sprinting five miles to my girlfriend's house because. <laughs> I was too messed up to find to find my phone. I'm like, I'm just gonna go there and knock on the door. I, it was like 11:30 night, sprinting through a, a dark golf course. I almost tripped over a skunk. Um, so that was my first experience with Salvia. And every time I did it after that, I get that um, like I call it the dollhouse effect, where if I don't take enough to pop out, I get enough to pull back to where I feel like I'm looking in on a dollhouse of my life. And I can see me and everything else, but it's very disconnected. And I guess that's it for the South. Well, my name's Don, and I'm going to tell you about my first trip right after high school. Uh, nearly 40 years ago. It was the worst experience of my life. It totally split my mind and personality and it hasn't healed till this day. So it's not a good story but it's a interesting one. Uh, I was with a friend of mine who had tripped before but he was straight that night. Uh, and it was the worst place of all to do anything because it was the boardwalk at Ocean City. And uh, I took about, I guess it was supposed to be a four-way tab, and I took half of it. So I guess it was like 500 mics at that time. Uh, and I first started getting off Who's Tommy Overture was playing and it was like fantastic and I just had surges rushes over me and it was like great and I I could never have a bummer you know I just feel so wonderful you know and I got on, got out on the boardwalk and walk, walked out on the beach and I was like floating on the rocks the jetty going out and then sitting in the sand I could feel the, the sand go through my fingers like liquid and I could sit, watch the 
reflection of the water come out of the sand. And it was all wonderful, but I started getting these thought floods of like epiphanies about my personal life and my my psychic makeup, and I started psychoanalyzing myself, and I was like making so much progress, like. Well, this is why I'm this way. I can change it to be like that, you know. And and one thought after another, and then I just kept going and going, which was a mistake. I should have just kept flowing. But the more I tried psychoanalyzing myself, the more I started separating from myself into a conscious ego, and the processes going on in my brain. And then all of a sudden, everything just stopped. And it was like my whole personality just sort of came to an end. And I guess I thought, like, this is what they mean when you forget who you are. Because uh, uh, I, I consciously had an ego, and I was thinking, you know, I was, I was perfectly lucid as far as my logical thought processes. But my personality itself, my emotion, my emotive self just wasn't there. I had no desire, uh, no sense of who I was, what I wanted in life, and I thought, oh my God, this is what crazy people must be like, but they don't find their way back. And as soon as I had that thought, I don't know if you've ever gotten caught in thought traps, but I couldn't get out of that thought, you know. I'm a crazy person. I can't get back into myself. I can't remember who I am anymore. And as soon as I thought that, I started thinking, well, I could be anybody then. And I started getting rushes of whole personalities, like well-formed personalities, not just little glimpses, but like what it would be like to be Jesus Christ, what it would be like to be Hitler. Uh, and thousands of people in between and then it wasn't just my mind that was following along these lines it was my body too Every for every thought and every mental image that I have I'd have a physical sensation of being that person too so it was like my body was like like thousands of personalities were like shooting through my body at one time, you know, like just morph, I was morphing back and forth, and I just tried to run down the boardwalk to get away from it, and uh, I saw like the other friends that I was with, and they started, they said, hey Don, how you feeling, you alright, you know, and, <laughs> and I just looked at them aghast, and I knew that they weren't doing that, you know, but I was seeing them act like this, you know, and that made it worse because I couldn't stop what they were acting like, you know, and then they were, I could watch them talking to each other, and I realized they weren't really communicating to each other, they were talking to their own image of the other person, because we're all separate beings within ourselves, and when we talk to another person, we rarely talk fully consciously knowing that that is another soul in another universe, actually. 
and we have to try to get through to that person as another you you know what I mean a new new separate a whole separate person we just take it for granted that they're seeing the same world that we are and so this person was talking at that person and the other person was responding at the other person but they weren't really communicating and everybody I looked around was like talking at each other like talking heads you know Mm -hmm. and they were uh, it was everybody was so alone I felt you know and I, I felt totally isolated and it all just reached a crescendo and I clamped down on myself and then all of a sudden I felt like I died like a part of my body my mind just kind of shrunk and all the hallucinations and stuff stopped but I felt like I was totally withdrawn from myself further and like you know I, I clamped down unconsciously on all of my uh, emotions all my uh, weird thoughts uh, all that stuff I clamped down on and I just the rest of the night I hung out at the place where we were staying and I talked I I could see that there was this one guy who was kind of putting off good vibes that he was like an older person in college and I said well I'm going to hang out near him because I could tell that he was more down to earth and not like a phony person you know and I tried to stay close to people like that around and uh, the next I just fell asleep finally and the next day I woke up and I was still separated from the world and uh, to this day I still am I still feel like I'm stuck in a trip sort of that stopped moving and I still don't feel like I'm like really with you all here you know I still feel one step removed and uh, it, it got me interested in Eastern philosophy and search for God and everything else and if I want to thank that trip for that I can thank it but uh, I, tr- I tripped several times after that a, a good amount of times for the next 10 years uh, because I tried to, I felt I had to figure out what happened to me so I could put myself back together. But I was really more or less uh, reinforcing that feeling of separation that I got from the trip, you know. So I, I just stopped doing it. Uh, I'm still hopeful that I could try small amounts of mushrooms to kind of get used to the initial stages of getting off and consciously kind of try to work into it and take a breath and switch my focus of consciousness and you know trust myself a little more that's where I'm at and that's that's my story and that's what taking LSD did for me so it's a cautionary tale uh 
I, I'm not, uh, you know, totally against it because I know what good it can do. I know that I did it to myself, actually, by taking too much and by taking my mind apart with my inner tools, you know. And but so I'm not against it at all, you know. I'm very interested, in it, but that's where I'm at. So. I wanted to segue off of heroic doses and psychotic breaks. Um, my first trip, I was probably 15, um, and it was an interesting journey of trying to acquire any kind of psychedelics with um, me and two close friends, um, Colin, Kalen, and Bryce. Um, so I think our first foray was trying to get any kind of acid. Uh, had a day at the beach and tried to do it and sat at the beach for eight hours sober. Um, so, found out later that the person we got it from, her name was Patches, um, sold us bunk acid, and she made up for it in a big way with a big jar of blue mushrooms. So, we planned our day better the next time, and went out to this place called the Albany Bulb in North Berkeley, California. Um, it is a funky little island made out of industrial refuse. Um, it's been grown over, uh, it's called the Bulb because it's like this peninsula shape. Um, that bulges out, and uh, there's some homeless encampments on it, there's some interesting art structures that have been built on it, but we thought it was a good enough place to be dumb teenagers and trip for the first time. Um, we were especially dumb teenagers and didn't know much about dosing, so I think we each took about a half ounce of mushrooms each, so math correctly, I guess that's 14 grams. Um, I, I think I had a fantastic day in comparison to my buddies who were with us, so the team of characters was me, um, my friend Kaylin, um, my boyfriend at the time was named Bryce, and uh, he has a bipolar schizophrenic, so that really came into play later in the day. Um, and another friend, Ariana, who had secretly not taken her mushrooms and left without any of our notice um, about two hours into the trip, and we're like, oh yeah, we're missing one. <laughs> so, she got off easy. I guess she had better things to do. Um, my trip was alright. Uh, it was a beautiful spot to be in. Um, we hung out by this spot called The Castle, and it was like built out of um, plaster and concrete and rebar and a spray paint, and we brought some spray paint to play on it. Um, I had a good enough time becoming one with this door jam and feeling the nooks and crannies into it and smashing some glass and forgetting how to talk and thinking I was an eagle. Um, so that was probably the deepest I got into mine. Um, at another point, uh, Kaylin had disappeared and that became another quest during the journey that wasn't solved until days later. Um, but the crux of it was really dealing with my boyfriend at the time um, who was having a complete break, um, talking to a lot of creatures and beings that weren't there um, getting in violent physical fights with them, which was violent physical fights with himself, um, and eventually me just having to get out of my not being able to speak and console him. Um, and I, I guess it didn't, it didn't really end so happily. Um, I had to get us both on the train back home. Um, 
uh, while receiving like a million calls on Kaylin's phone because um, he had left like all his belongings there um, dealing with like his crazy girlfriend. He's like, where the hell is he? Like, is he okay? We thought he drowned or went in the water. Turns out later he just went to go talk to his dad. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. It was a interesting experience and my first time experiencing that uh, Bryce's um, psychotic side which later came out a lot um, on its own without the aid of any psychedelic um, enhancements. So, yeah, that was my first trip. So before this experience, I had tried LSD probably a handful of times for the pretty lights, for the pretty colors, until this experience when LSD decided to do me. Um, we were in my apartment with my roommate at the time, and it was three of us who took uh, this, uh, the LSD together, my best friend Kirsten and you know, and myself. Uh, the dosage, I don't remember what exactly it was, but I, it was a lot more than I had taken previously, so I was expecting something different, something new, but nothing from like what had happened this time. Um, so we were in my apartment, and my apartment had this huge shag carpet in the middle of it, and um, during the come up, me and Yanel decided to roll around in this carpet because it just felt so good, it felt so amazing uh, on our skin. I'm rubbing my fingers through Yanel's hair because she has this awesome crazy hair and she it, I'd love the way it would feel through my fingers and just everything about her. Um, we also had this uh, Gustav Klimt painting on our on our wall. I don't know what it's called or which one it was, but it's the one with the mermaids. And we had brought it down because I was falling in love with this mermaid. She was so beautiful and you know how everything starts getting like the breathing effect or the dancing, everything starts to look like it's dancing. Well, this mermaid was dancing with me and I'm laying sideways, like on, laying down, staring at this mermaid and she just keeps pulling me closer and closer and closer, saying, follow me, follow me. And I'm just like, yes, I'll follow you anyway. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I eventually kind of like caught myself. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm talking to this painting. This mermaid isn't real. And so, and Knowing I had taken a higher dosage than usual, I texted another one of my best friends, Delma, to come over. Um, this girl is like a sister to me, and so I was like, hey, I uh, just took a higher dosage of LSD. Can you please come over and help me through this trip? Uh, I, I'm going to need some guidance. So eventually she comes over. She had just come out of a run, and I pull her down into the shag carpet with me and Yanel. <laughs> I start doing the same thing to her. I'm rubbing my fingers through her hair. And, I mean, mind you, she was all sweaty and smelly, but I was loving it. Just the scent of, of a woman, of admiring her for the beautiful woman that she is. And at some point, I, we're, we're, st I'm, we're still holding each other, and our, our energies, our souls, our life forces, whatever you want to call it, start spiraling up, and we're going up and up and intertwining at the same time. And... I opened my eyes and I was conscious in this other reality where 
I was looking out the eyes of Delma. I was looking out of my own eyes. I was looking out of the eyes of Janelle. And I felt this complete sense of unity. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever felt. It was just uh, so surreal, so, so, so beautiful. And it lasted only a couple of seconds, but then I immediately came back down into the carpet and I opened my eyes and I'm staring at Dhamma and I'm speechless because I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what that was. All I, all I kept saying was, did we just, was that, I, I didn't understand what it was. And I look over at Yanelle and she's crying. I'm looking over at Dhamma and she just keeps shaking her head saying, yes, yes. And I'm like, are we talking about the same thing? <laughs> Do you know what just happened? And she just says, yes. Yes, and I'm like, what, what, yes, like, yes to what? Like, what was that? I couldn't, I didn't understand. And I got up to go find Kirsten to see what she was doing. And she tells me she saw the look on my face as I got up that turned to complete worry because I just, I didn't understand what that was. She, and she's just like, it's okay, Jonathan, you're, 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 you're tripping, you're just on LSD. And I'm like, no, 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 I was awake in reality. This is a dream, this is a dream. I was awake in the reality. Um, and then by this point, another friend comes over into apartment because our apartment was like a hub for everybody to come into at any time they wanted to. Um, and she walks in and I'm staring at her. And again, I was just so confused. I, I, I didn't understand why there were so many different names for this one person that I was looking at. I was like, why do I call you best friend or Nahesi and somebody else calls you daughter and somebody else calls you girlfriend. I didn't understand why there were so many different names for her. I was like, we are one. Why would I ever distinguish you as something else? And she was just like, what are you doing? Interesting enough, it was also the first time I started seeing auras around people. And I'll never forget, I saw this beautiful yellow aura around Nahesi. And to this day, I call her my little daisy in the field because she's just a beautiful person. Um, but I, I spent the rest of that afternoon trying to like wake up because I, I, I swore I was in a dream and I wanted to go back to the reality. I wanted to go back to that reality where we were all one and everything was all one. And uh, because we were in my apartment, I would climb into my bed and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to fall back asleep and wake up in reality. And my friends would stare at me from the living room like, Jonathan, what are you doing in the bed? I'm like, oh, I'm just going to wake up in a little bit, you guys. No, don't, don't worry. And, um, I mean, eventually I came out of the trip and I realized, like, that was something different and I was actually awake in reality. But that is what sparked my curiosity into, um, you know, psychedelic experiences and what I had just experienced and um, started doing a bunch of research, making sure that I wasn't the only one who experienced that, even though Dumbo was like, yes, I experienced that too. Um, but yeah, so that, that, that was my first time, what I, what I call my spiritual awakening. And ever since then, I've definitely had a, many more experiences of, of otherworldly experiences, really, where have, they keep on convincing me that the, the reality really is out there in, in a reality where we are all one and there is no there is no separation between you and I because we are all one. So thank you guys. So I'm Isaac. Um, I had this was last year I was 
um, at the other end of a very stressful transition in time in my life. Um, and I was, as a side effect of that, in a very manic and anxious state. It was not because of psychedelics, so it was my living situation and all that is pretty bad. Um, so one of the most annoying things that came from all that was uh, like the sensory overload sound. Uh, so one of uh, my intentions that I brought into a mushroom experience was to face that and figure out what was going on, try to fix it or whatnot. Uh, so I found myself at a park that was next, there was like a train track went through. What was interesting is uh, several times, uh, you know, I'm hiking around and you know, uh, the loud train horns go through and uh, rather than getting in that frazzled state that's like nails on a chalkboard, I was laughing. And, you know, so there was a lot of healing done from that. Uh, and the same part, like 20 minutes later, there was a guy randomly cracking sticks on a bench, and I don't know. So it was the train and the sticks thing, you know, it really helped when it came to that sound issue. So after that, I mean, it basically 99.9% .9 cured me. Oh, um, of the sound issue. Sometimes I'll still go into certain places, but for the most part, it got fixed pretty easily. So I don't know. I got lucky, I guess. Um, just another quick story is I was on a hillside, and I had been hiking, listening to the whole of Beethoven's Ninth, and I had heard it before, so I knew how it ended and the timing of the Ode to Joy part. So I had sat down before that part happened, um, just, I don't know, just being in the moment and relaxing. Um, and so I guess it was a moment of synchronicity. Like, I, you know, I also knew that it was going to happen this way, so I was extra attentive to it. Um, but just, just, so just before the big uproar of the Ode to Joy, it gets really calm and quiet. So at that moment, the, um, the, uh, um, the wind stopped and it was really still and quiet around me. And then at the exact moment it happened, a big gust of wind came. So I just thought that was cool. And, you know, I could feel that it was going to happen. And I don't know, it's kind of cool. Yes. There are two favorite trips that I'll share with you. First one, and if you ever wanted to try this, please have a very trustworthy and sober trip sitter with you. I took a bubble bath, and it was a pretty deep bubble bath. And um, so I smoked and, you know, watched the dancing geometric visuals for a little while, and then I just kind of sank back and was relaxing, and then went underwater and held my breath for as long as I could, and then I just as I usually do, just kind of slip into a kind of a dream world. And for however long the trip lasted, I was swimming with humpback whales in under the sea out somewhere around Hawaii or something like that. That's what I felt like where I was. But I've always been fascinated by whales, and there's something about them that's really profound to me. So. I thought it was really awesome that I was swimming with humpback whales. Like, I just could not get over how, like, this is just great. I, you know, was in the bathtub, felt like I was in the ocean, and then um, as the water cooled off and slowly drained on 
it's kind of just lowered when I hadn't pulled the plug out or anything. I um, got, it's sort of, my eyes started to come down and I felt like I was lying in a creek. I had my eyes shut and the water was running over me and the person that was with me was just kind of gently splashing water on my stomach and there was this really amazingly serene sunset where, and I was in a creek, and it was like, as everything's starting to wear off, I'm like realizing, staring at the bathroom light above the sink, but it's just so beautiful, and I'm like, I wish anybody could have seen it, it was great. So, um, that was the end of that trip, and I guess the next one that I'll share was really the only one on DMT that ever really um, gave me kind of a, not a life-changing experience, but kind of I don't know, insight into, I don't know, my own future or something like that. So um, last summer, um, I had recently gotten divorced. I was married for nine years. Um, I have a nine-year-old. And for most of my 20s, I'm 31 now, I felt like there had been a lot of, I had made a lot of decisions that kind of eliminated paths in my life that I would have liked to have chosen. Um, and that I had been very isolated, and that I once I got divorced, it was a huge shift in my life, and I didn't know, I was on the edge of homelessness, I didn't know where I was going to like be in a year, what was going to happen to me, what I wanted to do, what I was able to do, yada, yada, yada. So this one night in August, I was outside with a friend out in the countryside, and it was a beautiful night. It was, there were clouds, um covering one half of the sky. The moon, it was a full moon, and it was blindingly bright. So it was hitting the clouds, and they were just really, like, icy and light and pretty. And it was also windy. There was a very um, warm wind that just kind of kept sweeping through the trees and kind of blowing them forward, and it was really relaxing. So I take a hit of DMT, and I held it in and just let that silky, beautiful smoke just drift out and everything gets a little bit fuzzy. And all of a sudden, there was a gust of wind that came and it appeared all of a sudden like the light from the moon was blasting nuclear rays of light and that was what was blowing the trees forward. And then, so I was lying on my back and watching the geometric designs and enjoying the fact that I understood the size of the universe and all that good stuff. And I was looking up at a star, I think it was Venus, and um, there was kind of like a sparkly thread-like net around it. And it just, without words, kind of informed me that this is something really beautiful that you can't have, but, and I became, I was just satisfied that I wouldn't ever be able to get to that place to see that star, which in the moment, you're not really, you're just thinking it's beautiful, not like you'll be vaporized if you get close to the star. So anyway, um, it just kind of tapered off, but then I was accepting of the fact that there are things that I can't have, but I can still appreciate them for um, what they are, even if I won't ever have them. So I kind of was thinking about how, yes, I've made bad decisions early in my 20s, throughout my 20s, and um the paths that I could have taken, that I wanted to have taken, could have been ended in really positive things and could have led to um, very happy lives for whichever way I had gone, but I couldn't have them. And I 
couldn't just appreciate what they are for other people to have them. But I guess in that moment, I realized that despite all of that, I had a new boyfriend and his family had taken me in like I was part of their family. And I have um, a nine-year-old who's healthy and I just began to look from that night on as maybe I can look at this as a new life instead of the end of my life. And um, it was just a very reassuring and kind of life-altering experience that I don't normally have on DMT. And I'm grateful for it. And I don't think I'll, based on the other experiences, that I'll have any other major life-changing experiences like that. I just, you know, look forward to maybe tomorrow going and smoking it and, like, hanging out with Bob Dylan while he's singing Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. So, that's it. Thank you. If you do have someone that you're really close to and can go to these deep psychedelic places with, especially that you've known over a course of time, I feel like you can level up in your psychedelic game. So I learned a new thing um, a couple months ago when I was in Thailand with my partner. And um, kind of after this big trip in the ocean, it was magical, we were like, like pulling each other around in the water. Um, but our eyes met at one point, we were both like laying kind of sideways and he was in this dark half-light. Um, and our eyes met really parallel, is the best way I can put it. Um, and I, something happened and I freaked out uh, as my first reaction. I, th I think I saw like some eyes and teeth just like fly out of his face. But then I was like, no, 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 wait, let's try that again. Um, so we sat there and both really concentrated on locking eyes. Um, and I did that for like 45 minutes. Um, and I came and began to describe like how deep the journey into someone else's face can go. Um, first it started just morphing into other faces and familiar things and scary things and having to confront that with the person that you love, um, turning into all these horrifying deep dark fears and then it became beautiful. Um, like his beard turned into like waves of the ocean I could go into it um, and swim with it um, and eventually I like looked in between or it's really hard to like lock eyes and then see past the eyes um, but that happened and I ended up between his eyes kind of in the third eye area and this like tesseract um, impossible geometry form started appearing um, and it got deeper and deeper and matrixy and like infinite darkness and I, f I felt like it was the closest to seeing someone else's soul and he pretty much had the exact parallel experience that I did so we, we, we haven't tried it again so intensely but just want to throw that out there it's a really cool activity to try out <laughs> and that's my addendum <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to tell an ayahuasca story. Um, uh, about three years ago, I um, was at a crossroads of life and um, uh, been a musician my adult life and uh, taken a rather strange course uh, 
and watched my entire, you know, my peer group move on to uh, family, career, and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, the deeper you go into leading an unconventional life, uh, you take big risks, but you kind of expect there to be a payoff at some point, right? For it to congeal into some sort of form that makes sense. So mid-40s, this still wasn't happening. And uh, I started having the feeling, like, was there some class that I didn't show up for? Like, was there, like, <laughs> like what the fuck did I miss that everyone else around me seems to have gotten? So, um, so I went to Peru, and, uh, and during the first, uh, the first three sessions of ayahuasca, um, and the second night, the first night was very mild, the second night, and I didn't know what to expect, 30 people in a room, and um, about halfway through the session, this guy starts trying to bolt from the room. Turns out his wife had had a, um, a stroke. She was a programmer and a hedge fund manager, really brilliant woman, and she had had a stroke and lost her short-term memory. So he was in the position of having to basically teach his wife the way you would teach a child how to reestablish a short-term memory. So, in the midst of his trip, he was reliving that moment of trauma, and he thought she had died. She was back at their apartment. He gets up, tries to bolt out of the room, and go back to his apartment and call her parents in Australia and tell them, your daughter's dead. You don't leave the space in the ayahuasca session, and, and going back to your, who's, who who's had the friend that split? You had the friend that split. You don't leave the space when you're tripping with people. It's bad form, right? <laughs> so, I, so it began about a two-hour experience of the shaman trying to get this guy down to the ground. And he was a little powerful dude who wanted to leave. So the whole group, 30 of us, were kind of like tapping into this dude's trauma and feeling his pain, and at the same time acting as kind of like healing mirrors to his experience. And this guy was at the top of his lungs screaming out, uh, my baby, my baby, I lost my baby. You know, I mean, and you know, I just got goosebumps just now. So when, when, you're, when you're feeling that kind of trauma and all the boundaries are lost between you and it goes right into your soul and it starts bringing up all your trauma and all your darkness too and the whole room was going through this and it got to a point where it was getting so dark and so deaf and so um, terrifying frankly that the only defense I could have uh, against it was to just um, say I'm love 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 over and over again for about, like I said, an hour and a half, two hours. I am love, just fighting this darkness and trying to keep it back and trying to give support to him. And, you know, it, there's this weird feeling on ayahuasca where you really kind of feel that you're all in it together and everyone is feeling what you're feeling and you're feeling what they're feeling. And it's this soup of this collective transformation. So finally the shaman gets his energy down, gets into the ground, and, um, and right at that moment from like right behind my left ear, I guess what I was looking for was like, what did I miss? What did I miss? What did I miss? What have I done wrong? What was I, how did I fuck this up so bad for so long? 
And right behind my ear, this really soft voice said, there is nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. And it was just so comforting. And it was like, it was like that little secret that, you, that you're waiting to hear. And when it come, drops on you, you're like, oh shit, there's nothing wrong with me. And it made it very clear, you're not done. You're not perfect. You're not finished. But there's nothing wrong with you. And it was kind of... You know, how many people have told you that in the past? You're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. You're making your own way. It's on, you know, but, and you know it intellectually, but this was a somatic body knowledge, like a super deep appreciation of like the biological intelligence and love of the universe. And it was kind of like, it was a deeper version of that bumper sticker, like God don't make no junk. It was kind of like that <laughs> thing, but on a super visceral level. So... As soon as that happened, then this parade of generations starting like farther back than I even knew just started coming up behind me of my whole family lineage and all my friends and all my friends' kids and they just got, came walking by me and to each one of them I got to say, thank you, I love you, 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 thank you, I love you. Took back as far as I could, could remember and farther and into the future. And it ended with uh, the vision of my living room, and uh, and there was a child in it, and I was childless at that at that point, and I felt the feeling like holy shit, like I'm ready. I think I'm ready. I, warning: don't, don't don't drink ayahuasca. You want to have a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so I came back. So right after that, then it proceeded to. After it showed me that, I'm like, holy shit, I gotta have, I'm gonna have a kid. <laughs> then it gave me like, which is w one of the things I love about ayahuasca, is that it basically just gave me a laundry list then. Like, it's so practical. I don't know anyone, if anyone's had an experience, but it's a very practical experience. It's like, here's what, when you go home, send flowers to this person and that person. You owe them flowers. Tell your grandmother this. Uh, you know, do this and this with your business. Do this and this. I'm a musician and work on that, leave that behind, music is this, so super practical vision, okay, so that was the first year, three years ago, come home, tell my wife, she was chopping at the bit to have a child, but I was like, I don't, how the fuck do you do this, I don't even have my life together, like, wow, how do you have a kid, I've, I'm so ill prepared for this, but then I came home with that, like, I think I can do this, let's do this, let's start, so we begin the process of trying to have a child, that was three years ago, oh, and at the very last session of that week, uh, uh, a voice came in the head. It's like, dude, Daniel Jabor had started the Psychedelic Society in, in San Francisco and it said, you got to start one of these. You just got to do it. People need to know this. You got to do it. So that's where this came from. So um, so then I uh, went back the next year, continued to work on it. The benefits of that in my life is just blooming, letting go of neurotic shit and, and just kind of accepting that like intrinsic... Um, goodness of, of nature's creations, just that like it doesn't want to create fucked up shit, and if you think you're fucked up you're kind of wrong, like there's an intrinsic goodness to this whole thing um, so we have been trying to have a kid sometimes it's not easy, sometimes it doesn't work out, you, you spend your whole life trying not to make it happen, and then when it's time, like fuck, it doesn't work so in the process of trying to have a child, my wife went off her antidepressants. That introduces an interesting 
uh, uh, <laughs> angle into trying to be intimate with someone is when someone's trying to come off an antidepressant. That's challenging. So I go back down to Peru again, and now it's, now it's under the auspices of, all right, I'm trying to have a child. I've taken care of me. I've turned a corner in my life, but I can only do so much with my partner. Like, you can't fix another person. And um, so first session, relatively mild. Second session, some major breakthroughs into, you know, some life stuff. And then the third session, I still hadn't shored up this, like, what can I do for the person I love? How do I help the person I love? I can't, I can't fix them, but what can I do? I must be able to do something. So it was a super big dose that night. Um, I remember going up and kneeling in front of the shaman, and he gave it to me, and, and uh, this detail's too good to, to leave out, and, it, and at, at the danger of dropping names, uh, this guy who was sitting next to the shaman, when I was, whose name rhymes with uh, uh, Schmenis, uh, McFenna. <laughs> I was drinking and I heard him go, God, because it was such a big dose. And I was like, fuck, this is, if I'm going to get some work done, man, this is the night it's going to be done. So, super high energy that night, and I, at some point, I was, you know, just rocking back and forth, rocking back and forth, could not come out of it. The night's ending, at, at the end of the night, the shaman sings everyone to sleep, and kind of, like, puts you in your bed, and, like, says a prayer over you, and your energy dials down to a point where there's 25 people in a room, all basically asleep at the end of the night. If it's, you know, it's 4 o'clock in the morning, and you start at 6 or 7, but everyone's down, their energy's down, and I'm still rocking back and forth because I'm trying to, like, what, how can I help this woman? How can I help this woman? We're trying to have a child. How can I see beyond this future, or beyond this moment into the future? And um, so one of the things uh, that, I, that I realized, I had, I had this insight into this concept of the golden rule, like what can I do for her? And I realized that in my own life, um, if I'm doing something and someone notices it and compliments it, it instantly sabotages it because I, I leave the act of doing it, I get into my head, and then I start self-analyzing in that whole nine yards. As long as no one says anything, I'm in the flow and I'm fine. I had assumed that like most people operate that, so I was not very... Um, forthcoming with compliments to this woman that I love. I was thinking that she didn't, because I didn't need it, she didn't need it, right? So it's this golden rule thing, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But like that doesn't make sense if because we're all different people, right? So I'm struggling with this and trying to find some, like what can I do for her? So then I had insight, instantly there came this, like so what, I think uh, in Jonathan Livingston Seagull there's this concept of the platinum rule, which is, do unto others as they would have done unto them, right? Not like what you do it for them, but what they would want. But that still goes wrong because what if someone is a, a you know, a, a, a masochist or, you know what I mean? Like if someone wants pain, like are you doing them a favor by giving them pain? Like that doesn't work either, right? And so then instantly this diamond flashed, you know, like you're seeing this, my eyes are closed and I'm seeing this, and I see this diamond and I had the concept, oh, shit, the diamond rule. There's a better one, golden rule, platinum rule, diamond rule. 
And um, the diamond rule, it instantly you know, flashed in my mind, was do unto others as they would have done unto them, but with imagination. So you gotta, you got to play your part in it too. So to just do a quick, uh, right before I left, she was going through a real tough time and at a real low, and it basically I left for Peru, Peru with her basically saying to me, I am so sorry you're stuck with me, with someone who's, who's going through this depression. So it was that idea of like, just her feeling terrible in a really low spot, I'm so sorry you're stuck with me. So I saw this diamond, the diamond rule, and instantly I was like, I have to buy her a diamond and recommit to this marriage. So we have been going about a year and a half trying to have a kid. Uh, and we're coming right up on the point where it was time to get science involved. And, uh, and so I came out of that, I came out of that session and shared the next, the next morning. I basically said, well, this last night's session is going to cost me a couple thousand dollars. I have to buy <laughs> my wife a, di a diamond and recommit to this marriage. So as soon as I got home, went, got a diamond ring and, um, and approached her and said, listen, you know, took her side in a moment and said, listen, uh, I'm recommitting to this marriage. I'm not stuck with anyone. None of us are stuck with anyone. Like, I have been through relationships and said goodbye to them before, and it's okay. Everyone lives, and, and we're allowed to let go of people in this life and find other people. I'm not stuck. I'm here because I want to be here, and I'm recommitting to this marriage. Um, so that was August of last year. And uh, in October, we got pregnant, and in June, I'm having a little girl. Something shifted in that moment that I gave her that ring and let her know that I was not stuck with her, but I wanted to be with her. And uh, it came out of that ayahuasca experience. Thank you. So I was uh, in my early 40s. I just had a child a year before and had 10-year-old twin, all daughters, twins. Uh, when I <clears throat> started experiencing rib pain, was getting more and more fatigued over a number of months. thought, well, maybe this is postpartum depression. I'm just going to wait. Maybe I'll go see somebody. And then I bumped my leg, and there was this massive hematoma that formed. And because of my background as a physician, I knew something was up bad. And um, I had a, like a somatic. I got sick to my stomach, called the doctor, and uh, within a couple of days, I had the diagnosis of acute lymphocytic leukemia, and it was pretty advanced. I had almost no platelets. Um, and, you know, they basically told me from the lab, drive very carefully to the ER because any sudden movement, you could bleed. You could bleed in your head, in your heart, in your organs. I mean, it was that severe. Um, and so I was admitted and underwent very intense in-hospital chemotherapy, uh, full-body radiation therapy, and a bone marrow transplant. And that was followed by several years of uh, you know, lots and lots of blood transfusions, infections, hospitalizations, 
I was in a wheelchair, in diapers, uh, IV poles everywhere in the house, oxygen tanks everywhere in the house. Like, and, and like to imagine that I was there and here I am now is really a miracle. It's really a miracle. The issue is, though, when you go into that place, that it's a basically an ego death because all you're focused on is taking the next breath. You know, you're no longer identified as a mother or a doctor or a teacher or a friend or anything. You're just a, kind of a blob <laughs> trying to stay alive. And it made me uh, go get really introspective about, well, if I'm not defined by all these external things, who am I? And that evolved, you know, I mean, I was really, I mean, it was like being on substance <clears throat> because I was, I was in, I was inside, experiencing my life from the inside while all this chaos was happening around me and to my body. Um, and there were several near-death, you know, moments um, where, where I, I really thought that was, that was, Gonna happen. It was gonna end. Um, and and in that space inside myself, I realized that I could just create whatever I wanted. Uh, you know, create whoever I wanted from this blank slate, and you know, sort of paint on a blank canvas, whatever, however I wanted to be. Um, and so it began, you know, the recovery began, and physically I began to heal miraculously with very little chance of survival. Um, and uh, and but there was a there was a, a spiritual uh, healing that needed to happen. You know, it was really a traumatic experience. I had had previous traumatic experiences growing up. And um, and so I sought help from a rabbi, um, and that was somewhat helpful. From therapists, not helpful. Um, and uh, and then um, I saw the advertisement for the for the study and volunteered. Um, and in two sessions, my life completely changed. You know. Uh, I left a marriage that was not, that gave me the feeling of suffocation like it felt when I was on the ventilator. And I thought, if I stayed in this marriage, I think I'm going to, I'll probably get sick again, you know. Um, and uh, I st- started a completely different relationship with my body. I started eating healthy. I started exercising regularly. I started paying attention to my body's needs and my emotional needs and my spiritual needs. And from there, it just continued to evolve and evolve and evolve. And um, I've been working on my own with plant medicine since, um, in a guided way, uh, which I think is key, um, in a very sacred way. 
Um, and um, it, it just it worked for me, you know. Um, so it was an, uh, such a blessing to have that available, to be exposed to it in the way that I did, um, and to continue to hold it in a really sort of sacred way. Like, I don't call it drugs. I call it um, plant medicine, because that's what it is. Um, so that's my story. <laughs> they can do it. I showed up um, randomly. I, as somebody told me about this. I was like, okay, you're just going to go to this guy's apartment. It's on the eighth floor of this random building in New York City. Um, have fun. Like, you probably won't have fun. It's kind of challenging, but just go for it. <laughs> I show up, and it's like, everyone sitting around is so diverse in terms of, like, background, age. Um, there was a guy there with his son, so there was someone who was 18, there was someone, I think, up to 75. We were all just strangers shoved in this room about to take this crazy experience together. Um, it was my first time doing ayahuasca. And we didn't know what to expect. Uh, the person, I was lying on a couch, and there was a guy who was sitting with his back against the couch right where my head was going to be, where I was lying. So we started chatting, and he shared that he was a lifelong sailor. And that he was only there because he was researching vomiting. And he didn't really care about getting high. He just heard that ayahuasca makes you vomit. And since he researches vomit, he thought that he should try it out. I'm not even kidding you. <laughs> Honestly, why this guy was there. He was like 60 years old. Um, and I was like, well, you know it's like a really intense psychedelic trip, right? And he's like, yeah, but I just want to see if I'll vomit. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> um, cool. <laughs> Uh, he also told me that if you put a nickel and a penny in your mouth at the same time, it creates a taste that um, makes your brain trick you into vomiting. So don't do that unless you want to try that. Um, that's just more like evidence for the story about why this guy was there. So he was there for that. And he, um, so basically the way we were sitting, it was like our heads were going to be next to each other for this experience. And I knew, he I don't think he had taken a psychedelic before. He was like, oh, I took acid once in the 60s. And I'm like, I think it's different than that. Like, we may kind of be interacting with each other inadvertently. Um, and he's like, okay, so we introduced ourselves. My name's Catherine, is my full name. And he was very warmed by that. He said, oh, my mother's full name, my mother's name is Catherine. I was very close with her. That makes me feel safe and comfortable that you'll be right next to me. Um, and then I just thought he was a nice guy. I was like, okay, you seem cool. I like that you're here too. Um, so we drank the ayahuasca, lights went down, um, everybody's kind of in their own thing. And at one point, like I said, there, there's two parts of this trip that I specifically wanted to share. At one point, um, I had this really intense urge um, for like love and comfort. And I thought that holding somebody's hand this is a really beautiful kind of affectionate thing that people can do with each other, and it's not so intimate that it's like it's not like oh this is a lover or something. But you can hold hands with a parent, with a friend, um, somebody you just met. You shake hands, but like really holding hands is nice. I had the urge to hold somebody's hand, 
but I felt like, oh, I don't know these people that well. Like, I thought like maybe this guy I just met would go hold his hand, but I'm like, oh, he's just here to vomit. Like, I don't, <laughs> don't want to like impose intimacy on him. And then there's kind of this like weird age, gender dynamic. I was like, I don't want it to seem like, I don't want to seem it like it's too intimate or anything. So I just kind of let it go. Um, so that passed. And then I had another thing that stuck with me, which was um, I had an experience where I was looking at a baby in my arms. Um, it was like a vision of holding a baby. But I realized that I was, I, Catherine, was the baby. And I was seeing me through my mother's eyes. And I could feel um, this intense fear and love and um, confusion that she felt having me as a baby. And I felt it myself, which was really um, cool, I guess, for empathy. It was also really emotional to kind of not just know her stories. I'm, I'm her only child, and I know that when she had me, she was very afraid um, about taking care of a kid. So... Uh, it was cool to feel that. Um, when that passed, the whole trip was over. We went and like they kind of they tied up the ceremony, went to the kitchen. We had some like vegetable soup, um, sat around, and I overheard the the vomit guy, um, which is not the sailor. He's the sailor. Um, I overheard the sailor telling somebody about holding someone's hand, and I was like, what? And I'm like, I'm not gonna interrupt you. I was like. What? And he was like, oh, like halfway through my experience, first of all, he was like in awe of the whole thing. He was like, I never expected that. Like I had, he told me he was really grateful that I was behind him. He felt like a mother energy there. And he's like, I know it's weird. You're like half my age, but I felt like motherly warmth coming from you. Um, and he's like, and I, at one point I just wanted to hold somebody's hand. And he said the same thing. He was like, I didn't want to reach up and feel like I was coming on to you and this older guy and like asked to hold your hand, but I really wanted to hold your hand. And I was like, that's crazy. I wanted to hold your hand. And it was just kind of a sweet story. And we had soup together and he gave me his book. And uh, yeah, I, that's the end of my story. <laughs> Yeah, Mike read my article in the city paper and asked if I would come and talk about it. And um, the premise is sort of, I did a study at the end of 2014, and um, one of the experiences I had was was that, uh, you know, I, I'm 34, so I always thought of psychedelics as, even though I had done mushrooms whenever I was young, 14, 15, 16, um, it was always at a party or somewhere, so I was, I was just getting, you know, completely fucked up and puking, you know, sort of typical shit you do whenever you're a teenager. But one of the sessions at Hopkins, it was a very sobering experience, and I thought that was counterintuitive, and especially to people who, like my parents and and uh, uh, people that that their ideas of psychedelics come from 1960s, psychedelia, flower children, Kate Ashbury, Charlie Manson, things like that. So I thought that was an interesting idea that, oh, Jesus, this is a really sobering thing. It's a horrifying thing. And that maybe if you, if that, that was more well known, um, it wouldn't be such a threatening thing. Um, so the first session at Hopkins uh, was really fun. I thought it was ketamine, but it wasn't. They just unblinded the study. It was actually psilocybin. But uh, 
it was really intense because I had never done psychedelics with a blindfold, and the music in particular was very powerful because it guides you. Um, it sort of controls what you're thinking and guides the whole tone and, and of the whole thing. And in the, the first one, I, it was almost like this Lion King experience where I felt like I was born into a new world and there were these beasts looking over the cliffs at me and I was like I was being born and it was, it was amazing. But the second one, um, I lived so close to Hopkins I could walk. And I think I had to be there at nine or something. But the water pipe burst in my house. And it was a disaster. There was water everywhere. And these people came, the, the landlord called these people in. And these five or six people came in in the morning. And so it wasn't a good morning. I didn't eat. And I got there. And I was like, fuck, I don't even want to do this. And uh, so I was sort of like, all right, just give me the, you know, let me get, I didn't say this, but I was like, give me the pills and let's do it. And, you know, I'm going to have a buzz and then we're going to get, you know, and then we'll get it over with. And so they give you the cap, or I, I took the capsules. We looked at a book, as was protocol. And I didn't realize this until afterwards, but in one of the books, there was a painting of the Garden of Eden, and there was a snake in the picture. So I took the capsules, my stomach was hurting, and uh, I started having all these visions of jokers and all these intimidating things in my field of vision, and I was like, oh no, I was like, I didn't want to do this. And I was thinking, maybe if I ask for a sandwich, it'll it'll sort of smother it and it'll go away. And I think I did ask for food, and they were like, it ain't anywhere near lunch. And then I started seeing snakes. And, th and, and then I thought that a snake had bitten me, and that's what was causing me. I thought, oh, the venom's running through my veins, and I'm going insane because I, I forgot who I was. And then I was like, what the fuck am I doing here, and where am I? And then... Uh, a few weeks before that, I was with my friend Caleb, who's, who's here tonight, and our friend introduced us to this snake handler from Cecil County, and he had 100, over 100 snakes in his house, and he was, this guy was hysterical. A few days before this, he had been bitten by a, I think it was a gaboon viper, <laughs> and he was extremely angry at his neighbor, who was home at the time, who he was saying, fuck this motherfucker, oh, this guy's from Cecil County, he's like a redneck type of dude. Because this gaboon viper had bitten him. This guy was in his 60s, and he's out on the floor. The neighbor comes in, calls the ambulance. They lifeline him to Philadelphia to where the uh, anti-venom is at, and it saved his life. But he wanted to die. But And so he was extremely angry. So I started mixing up this snake with this snake story, and I started saying, Hey, Mary, I think um, it was this snake guy. Remember the snake guy? Because I thought she knew... My friend Hugh Campbell, but she actually she knows his brother, but didn't know Hugh. And she was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I was so paranoid that I thought, oh, they're trying to act like they don't know me. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, they're filming this, and now, and I'm breaking the whole thing's gonna, I'm gonna ruin the whole study because now they know that I know them, and it's gonna, you know, it's, this is a violation of the protocol, and you know, like I just fucked everything up. So then it just fueled me into a, a maelstrom of fear and paranoia, and I was like, oh, God. And and then I started experiencing the pain of all these different people I knew. My, my, my grandmother was in the hospital. I thought she was going to die, but she didn't. And my mom is taking care of her, and so I felt I was in this just extreme emotions of feeling other people's pain, like a religious experience, and I was like, God, life is miserable. And like, oh, my, grand, my poor grandmother, she's suffering in the hospital. I'm laying here. This is terrible. 
And in this year, this was, I don't know, the summer of 2014, I, I had separated from my wife in February. And uh, so I had to drop out of school. I just totally fell apart and felt horrible and I couldn't really function. You know, I just was sort of drinking and like, what am I gonna do? I dropped out of school, I was writing, I really just lost all sense of direction. And so I was having these visions of all these people and I'm like, oh, this is horrible. And then I, and then I was having a vision, or then I was thinking about somebody who I thought was a friend. I was like, geez, this guy, this guy's a loser. His life has really fallen apart. And I was like, it's not Caleb. And then like, at like 100 miles an hour, like a car, I've been in some pretty serious car accidents. It was like a car wreck. Immediately, I recognized it was myself. And I was like, oh, fucking shit. I was like, oh, no. And I didn't think I could face it. I realized, I was like, oh, my God, I broke up with my wife. And I was like, what? Why? And I was like, I'm in, or I'm in school, and I had written this article in the city paper, and it was banned from the city paper. They censored it because of the things I was saying. I was like, what is wrong with me? I was like, I'm like a crazy person. I could see myself completely objective, like other people saw me, you know, like unglossed by delusion, or I thought that. And um, that was why I said psychedelics are a sobering experience, because I saw myself objectively, and I was, it was horrifying. It was humiliating. And, uh, yeah, I mean, really, that's the, that's the psychedelics is a sobering experience thing. And, and the fear, when you face that amount of fear, coming back to the, I didn't think I could leave. And also, I'm very close with, I should say, I'm very close with my dad. And I thought, when I was thinking this, I go, this can't be me, because my dad would have said something. He would have been like, look, you've got some problems, you can do it. But he's such a nice person, he never really confronted me. So I thought, my dad surely would have told me. So then it's over, and I'm like down in the dumps, and I talked to Mary and Teresa and, I'm, and, and the whole team, and Roland, and they were like, look, this is a very harsh judgment. You can't, nobody could deal with this level of scrutiny. And um, I was like, oh, God, but, you know, if you see yourself in this way, it's not easy to get over. And um, so then they came in, the day was over, and they said, yeah, Caleb can't pick you up today. Uh, his work is something about his work, and I was like, oh, see, he doesn't even want to be friends with him anymore. He knows this. And he's like, look, this guy's a loser. I don't want to be friends with him anymore. And then they gave me my phone, and it was five missed calls, Bobby Kitchens, who's my dad. And I was like, oh, shit. I was like, as soon as I leave here, they're going to say, what are you doing? You're doing drugs in the middle of the day. Your wife left you. It's like, what are you doing? Like, this is crazy. But, um, so, yeah. But, but the fear part of it, and this lessening of fear that all the, if you've seen all these latest articles and the, the scholarly literature from the Journal of Psychopharmacology, the whole experience is, is this lessening fear and terror. Uh, if you experience that, there really is a lessening of fear because when you return to the, what someone called the reassuring banality of everyday existence, things don't seem that fucking bad because eventually your delusions and your ego comes back. And if you think of your ego as like a data bank of stories, um, rather than, I think people conflate ego with pride and don't think of ego as a set of operating instructions, as Terence McKenna says, so that you know to put food in your mouth, not the other person's. So that lessening of, I mean, there really, there really was a tremendous lessening of fear once I faced all these things and all of these uh, things that were probably beneath my level of subconscious in my subconscious and beneath my level of awareness but that I was unwilling to face around. I'm, I'm just very good at blocking things out. Um, so I'm not usually in that realm of emotion much. I just sort of am operating on a everyday basis like, whoa, whatever, you know. Um, 
I think that's really, I can't remember if there was another part to the story or not, but um, that's all I remember for right now. Mm -hmm. So I've got, um, instead of, I wanted to read because reading's fun, and um, so I went through my session notes from uh, springtime in 2009 when I went to the BPRU and volunteered for, uh, the study was called 609, um, a lot of revealing information there. Um, and I had known a handful of people in town here who had got underwent the, the uh, study, and everyone had really wild reports. Everyone was saying they were giving you know, every drug that they could think of, um, but no one knew what it was, what was going on. So um, just kind of run down of how it all went there. I'd wake up in the morning, a really busted cab would come and get me. Um, hopefully, uh, I would get bubbles. He was like the really great guy uh, to come and not, you know, there's, uh, yeah, right? Well, it was so good. Um, but it seemed like half the cab drivers also volunteered for certain, not the psychedelic ones, but they're in some sort of, you know, rehabilitation. So it was a good, it was a good, you know, those were the guys taking you over the river. Um, get there around 8.30 and, you know, fill out forms and, you know, I'd do tests, you know, just sort of, uh, you know, I guess I'd fill out forms and then I'd be given four unmarked green pills hang around for 45 minutes, talking, flipping through books, chatting up, um, feel something come on, maybe not feel something come on, put on eye shades, put on some music, lie back down on the couch. Uh, I think it was about an hour to an hour and a half, uh, the music would stop, and I'd be faced with very two you know, humans that are looking at me, um, and they start asking questions. You feel a drug effect. Does the room look different? Um, what was happening when you were lying down? What kind of drugs do you think you've gotten? Um, and from there, I would stand on one foot, one arm, and as a very tall, lanky person, that's actually quite difficult without <laughs> drugs, you know. So add a little in there, it got would get successively harder. Um, uh, then another one of the tests. This is the, I think really the one I really liked. Uh, there's a circle board. And there's an array of lights, and there's a button. And the name of this game is you press, there's a light, you press the button, and as soon as you press it, another light appears. And so you got a minute to uh, cycle through that, see how, see how quick you are. That's, um, you know, the human, human guinea pig carnival game there. So that's a good one. Um, then I go sit in front of a computer, screen after screen after tasks, asking, you know, asking questions, um, memor memorizing numbers, you know, uh, what is this? Yeah, it's like, rec yeah, recognizing numbers, uh, hand-eye coordination ones, sequences, and the really good one was um, pre getting presented with banal words that asked you if it was natural or artificial. <laughs> I, that was a, you know, it's, it's a good one. Um, and so after all that, um, I'd go back down, lie down on the couch, and 
go down for another hour, hour and a half, come back up, do it again. And that's, that's how it went. Um, eight or nine sessions, no idea what the drugs are. So I'm just going to start, start reading these. So I also, I also just kind of, I recently went through them all and just kind of updated because I'm not a very good writer and I skip words and say things wrong. So I went through and kind of changed the language and, um, made it and cut out a lot of the garbage too. So I'm not going to read everything, but I'm going to read some that are pretty fun. Okay, thank you. All right, session number two. This, this is great. I really enjoy this. I can usually call visions alone with my eyes closed. Add eye shades and music, that, that will take me right there. Oh yeah, this is a very low dose. Of substance. <laughs> Some mystery substance I, I received today. Yeah, hello. <laughs> Slowly in the session, the background fuzz of light in, in my mind's eye started shift, shifting into recognizable forms in a, some sequence of narrative unfolds. Fuzzy moss, green and vibrant, moss wall, clear and sharp. Excitedly, my rational awareness steps in and tries to codify this experience, and then the moss wall disappears back into static form. Deep breathing, and I let the music take me deeper. The moss wall grows back again, more alive with each breath. It cracks and breaks into two sections. Split down the middle, a reverse tower of darkness erupts out of the wilds, the music is rich and deep and swelling. Each passage creates a form. The sound, swell, and the sound swells and a wall is created. Another swell and then there's a floor. Another swell and then there's another wall. Another wall. Walking in this valley, this cave is electric mind space time. Fear nothingness and walk on the edge. Be moved. Swelling more and more, the music builds up in intensity to a peak. And with it arises a clear, bright, blinding moon in the sky. My mind body is firmly looking out of the cave. Returning back to human mode, during the computer tasks, I notice something. It catches my eye. Looking at a garbage can over my left shoulder, and I'm thinking of the garbage can. Yeah, it's the shape of a can. Garbage can. Garbage can. Garbage. Can. <laughs> Shape. Oval. Sort of small. It's a can. Garbage can. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, I'm in the middle of a computer task. Hello. <laughs> Turn my head back and I start clicking away. Session three. <laughs> it's been maybe half an hour since I dozed, and I've been sitting quietly reading and waiting. My arms start to get sensitive and tingly. Inside my chest, I feel a slow building of energy. It's the first real day, warm day of spring, and man, am I inside this big, soul-sucking, cubicle matrix complex with sealed-up windows. <laughs> no nature, no fresh air, nothing to break the co code of controlled environment climate. The tingling gets stronger, and I pull the eye shades down, put on the headphones, and give a thumbs up. <laughs> Preparing for some sort of uh, something, yeah, you know, the odds are just getting better of getting a real kick to my organism. Instead of the previous two sessions where of, do I feel something? I guess I do. Do I really? Well, yeah, sure, maybe I do. Well, if I think I do, I must. And if I don't, I won't. But maybe I'm just really meditating here, fulfilling expectations. So I, f I focus on the buzzing warmth in my chest, and it slowly rises up my spine, climbing to the very top of my skull. I wait for a second and realize, well, dang, this ain't no psychedelic drug today. Shit, my consciousness is jammed into the very top part of my brain, and now thoughts are pouring into it and being spun around like a Ferris wheel. 
I feel my blood pumping right in the middle of my ears. Man, this is a real cerebral kind of state. My body doesn't feel especially loose and zippy, jam, like I jam feel when I'm jamming on coffee or trucker speed. But maybe I've been dosed with one of those social mind levelers for people who do not resonate well with the linear wave rationalist capitalist society. I don't know. I don't mind thinking fast. Maybe my coffee was just extra good this morning. And I'm tripping on the power of coffee. Man, this music sucks. These eye shades are stupid. I'm annoyed at this situation. I'm ready to get up. Sure would be great to go outside. I can't wait for the computer tasks. My eyes are wide open and all I see is the blackout world of the eyeshade. Time is a horrendous beast. Finally, great, I'm up doing tasks. Here we go. It's the task where you see long strings of random numbers and as soon as you type it on a keyboard, another sequence of numbers appears. And I have to do this, try to do this for five minutes and I have to decide when the five minutes up. Haha, game on. <laughs> my mind starts to count. One, two, three, four, up to 60. And then I create a notch in my head. Then I find the part of my brain that takes the visual input of the black and white pixel arrangement, decode it into numbers, and then shoot the electricity down to my hand muscles and connect to the keypad numbers. I'm totally jamming this one. My body is rocking to the seconds count, 23, 24, 25, 26, and my foot is count, tapping to, to the string of numbers, 8735, Four eight three six five seven three two. I'm jamming so hard. My body is in auto bypass mode. I'm going so good, I start to drift off while I'm doing this, thinking about what I'm going to be doing later in the evening. <coughs> Session four. <laughs> Extended beyond the walls of the flesh body, a stone tossed into water. Ripples manifest a layering internal architecture. Looking around with mind-sight vision, I locate and experience my psyche body. It is a luminous, fibrous substance. I go deeper in, and I feel the star clusters wrapped in crystalline webs. Crawling like a spider on these pulsating waveform webs, pulling me inward into deep valleys, and then pushing me outward, over, above, beyond. Pulling to the center dissolves everything back into non-identified waves. I play the internal balance act, trying to get a proper liftoff. Shift to heart-centered awareness. Brain banks are loosely activated to keep a focused narrative. Not too laser sharp, not too controlling. I got this. Okay, now let's kick in the guts and push. A superimposed image appears, a loaf of bread forming, and then there's a knife, and it's slowly cut into pieces. Cut away and free, I'm flying over mountains, forests, and natural landscapes of earth and beauty. Zipping across planet earth at high speeds, a wall appears and I slam right into it. Solid shapes flicker into a succession of forms. As each one appears, I push it aside and is replaced by the next. Sumerian gods, golden Egyptian thrones, Moses in the burning bush, Jesus, Kali, gray aliens in robes, Every, counter, every encounter I reject, and it is replaced by the next. These are not my gods, like flipping through a deck of cards. It comes to, it comes to thought that I'm, I'm hitting the, the morphic field of the mystical states floor. I've been filling that out at the end of every session. This is just the byproduct set up by the design of the study, trying to map out what is a spiritual experience. These are not my gods, or maybe perhaps this is the resonant of past people who have been in this room sticking around in the ether. 
Or maybe this is encoded in my DNA that I'm just tapping into it and accessing it and cycling through, burning it up and updating. These are not my gods. I feel no connection, no authentic relationship to these manifestations. They seem like cheap magic tricks. Session five. Spinning, spinning out, spinning, lifting in a clockwise swirling motion, twisting me around like a cosmic corkscrew. Pretty decent dose here. Control is something that needs to take a back seat. I focus on this swir swirling wormhole, su superimposing a string from the top of my head down my spine to my feet. Superimposing on top of that, a string of planet Earth's tilted axis. Both of these bodies become one, the Earth and the human. I'm now vibrating like the swirling of the magnetic poles. This twisting energy forms into two vines wrapped around each other. Like an upside down jack in the beanstalk, I climb down the vines and in through the roots. And poof, it's all gone. The vortex is gone. Everything is crystal clear and still. I can still locate my body lying down on the couch, but my consciousness is not tied to the organism as I normally am. I can move freely within it, stopping at very area, various areas and interact with it. I instantly feel a tightness in my back that is connected to my chest and goes down to my gut. I focus on my hands and they start to distort in size, becoming very large and very small at the same time. I am the hand in the Mickey Mouse gloves and the glove itself. Exploring my body more, it becomes, it becomes plastic anywhere my consciousness goes. It's a push and pull, laffy taffy body stretches. And that session was really cool. Um, what happened in it too, I started just going through my body, like every area of it, and, I, and since there was this really interesting plastic uh, malleability to it, um, I noticed my liver, I went to, like eventually, because there was this tightness and then it was in my gut, and then I went down into my liver, and then I saw this narrative unfold that I, I had been drinking alcohol because I had been really nervous because I was about to do a solo tour across Europe. And um, so I was just like drinking, I don't know, I don't, I don't really drink that much, or I didn't at the time. Um, and my body was like really kind of like messed up from it. So it was, a, it, it, I thought that one was, that was a really good session. So I just kind of like explored my body and went, went through that, you know, which is, you know, a really great, you know, that's good stuff. Okay, session number seven. <clears throat> it is now a week later and I'm finally writing this. I think everything is settled. And this is my best attempt to art articulate it. I'm very humbled in knowing that some things I'm struggling to understand and some things will be unknowable. At this point, I have absolutely no idea what is in those four little blue pills. Seriously, it could be anything, or they could be giving me absolutely nothing. Okay, well, I know I'm getting something, but let's not confuse the boat with the river here. Or am I? Or thinking of the boat in the river analogy, just a creation of a larger boat nestled inside another river? <laughs> or is that a smaller boat in a smaller river? You know, when all these factors break down, what is really happening here form into some sort of soup of total experience, chemical, elemental, actions, consequence, personal, historical, intuition, logic, intention. Well, what am I doing? I'm volunteering to alter my consciousness by taking, unknown to me, substances and these substances are creating common enough states that they differ sometimes in very subtle ways. So I'm navigating these chemical imprints and bringing back information to the best of my ability. Is this some sort of scientific shamanism? Collecting the fractured soul shards of our culture? What is going on? 
I'm lying down. The music becomes a blank wall of stimulation, white noise, nothingness, just like my eyes, black holes, goodbye. The clear mind, the hollow earth, the flaming heart, lava under the crust, planetary consciousness. I am the earth, the moon, the planets, the sun burning, expanding consciousness, swallowing up each one. The sun becomes my heart, the solar system my mind. My spine is connected to energy even larger and unknowable. Faster and faster I'm shooting out, past universes and galaxies, out to the edge of the cosmos. As everything expands and becomes greater, my singular self is becoming smaller, burning away to a tiny crisp. It feels great to shed the shell of the self. It is such a small little thing. Pure awareness is manifesting as a void the edge of all possible knowns. It's a line we cannot pass into a singular entity. It's the limits of human understanding. Let's let it rip. Let's pull out all the stops, returning back to what has never begun. Okay, what happened next is unclear to me at this moment in time. What happened right after, I know. What happens leading up to it, I can recall somewhat in my memory, but there's a point where I'm unable to. I'm not really sure what transpired. So anyways, I'm approaching a point where everything is wrapped in a blanket of nothing, eagerly excited to enter it, or I tried to. Well, I don't really know. If I can know, if I tried or if I didn't try, well, then there's a spot. I don't know. Everything's really confusing. It's strange and complex. Time is not linear. Or maybe my mind has been scrambled. MK Ultra never ended. I am aware that I am aware of myself. Wait. Don't dissolve. Dissolve. Wait, Twig, you can step away if you have to. No, you have to sit up in a minute and start talking to the researchers like a good monkey man. you got to push all those buttons. But how do I fit the entire known unknowns of existence in this tiny, tiny speck of a body? This is a very, hard, a very, very hard logic problem. Or that's the problem. It's not logic at all. It's cosmic logic. I have to find the room with my body and get in it. Wait, of course. Wait, wait. I'm in the middle of my body. It's right here in the middle. I'm in it. But I've expanded so far out, and it's so small and tight. Okay, i got to go in a little at first. Whoa, it's all distorted and filling up. How much can I stuff in here? Whoa, i got way too much space junk in here. My heart starts pumping faster and faster as I become aware of the music. It's a really heavy segment of building and testing me. Well, that's not helping. Okay, get back to the center. This is a battle. I turn, off the, I turn on my side and pull off the headphones and, and eye shades, reaching for the garbage can. I need to puke this motherfucking cosmos out. <laughs> I retch out, but I don't retch out. I'm not, I'm not, don't throw up. I retch out with my lungs, retching breath. It happens again and again and again. No actual puke. I feel a hand on me and some encouraging words. I put my hand on that hand, and it really helps pull me back. The simple things are the best. I'm blown wide open. Everyone and everything in the room is flat like holograms, surrounded by everything that is, the real, the essence pouring out and cycled in and getting swallowed up into infinity. I am a piece of paper, a doodle representing something much more in, interconnected and un unknowable. The pull back into the cosmic reality is so great. I have to use almost every ounce of my energy to stay in this flat world. I sit at the computer terminal, you know I, I'm really enjoying every second of this. <laughs> I, come to, I come to the ones about subjective feelings of drug effects. They're just impossible to answer. I can feel any way I want. Headachey? Sure. Tired? Yeah. 
Energetic? Totally. Sleepy? Sure. Okay. Hi? Yeah. I just answer straight down the middle. Neutral. The natural or artificial artificial section is extra trickstery right now. So I, I have to construct a viewpoint to answer if something is artificial based on how other people view reality of realness. <laughs> because everything's natural, you know? Next thing. Next, trying to memorize the words for later recall becomes even more ridiculous. I've just melted my psyche down to gold and blew it to an infinite amount of interlocking hyperdimensional rotating pieces arranged in a divine logic, and you want me to see if I can remember tangerine, apartment, or vest? <laughs> this is fun. I have to hold up the flat earth as the numbers on the computer monitor shooting back spiraling and every concept attached to it. Finally, I preserved and was re rewarded. I got to journey back in and back out again, lying down on the couch, closing my eyes, putting the eye shades on. I'm looking down, and I see my body lying on the couch. Like a magnet next to the loose iron fillings, energy is flowing through my, my heart and out into the world with no end. I see the room in the building and what everyone who's interacted with these studies. We are doing good work. I see my life in the projects that I have undertaken and accomplished. Yes, yes, wow. Baltimore, you insane vortex power city. Here we all are. Wow, I'm floating above Baltimore. A wave is shooting out and spiraling up, up to me. Inside of it, history, time, place, fate, it's all inside and funneling down into the city. It's the perfect storm of the now. Baltimore, you untamable beast, a holy city like no other. The veil is very thin here. Balance. Paradox, a holy city where thought and manifestation is very thin. Get holy or die trying. The phoenix is rising out of the smoldering ashes of the underbelly of the great beast. This is the end. This has only begun. All right. I got into a car crash last Friday. My friend told his car, and we were going into Washington, D.C., and we were going straight. It was like a uh, green light, and then a guy came over and just, we smashed it to him, like, on, like, probably 45 miles an hour, and um, we spun. The whole front of the car was destroyed. My side was, like, caved in, but not one scratch was on us, and on impact, since we were going so fast, and we just, like, stopped instantly, it was like... The space was like distorted around us. It was like that touch of death, and like it was like you know for that single second that you forget it, and then you know you're back in that moment with all the glasses flying around and the airbags coming out, and um, you know you're just questioning, you know, why am I still here? Like why not not just die? Did I just die? That's how it was. Like I was like, am I dead right now? I just couldn't really believe I was still standing there. And funny thing about it is like we got out. Well. My friend was like very distraught. He was like uh, really upset about his car, but the insurance took care of it during school. Um, but after all that was over, we then went to still take the acid that we were going to plan to take that night to like <laughs> rethink like what we just experienced, right? So in that experience, it was like um, it was very interesting. We got back. We were just like you know we really had a second chance. So it's like every choice that we make from this point moment on. Like it matters. Like there's there's no going back. We have to like do whatever we were here to do. And um, so we got in. We took a, like a gel tab. It was like the strongest 
like it was like just one gel tab. It was it was very strong, and then um, we smoked a little bit of pot, and then we watched two movies. We watched Batman vs Superman, and we watched um, Ends of Cell. And in that time, it was just like um, you know, death is very interesting. That whole death kind of state. Uh, I think life is about being here in this moment and learning everything you can and trying to impact the world because um, you know some people might think life is meaningless, but even if the question does get answered and it might not be what we thought, um, the people here, what we impact here matters to the people that you know are here when we're gone, right? So we have to take care of the earth. We have to you know start thinking of things differently, and um, I thought that was important, but it was also just like. Death is just a point of observation. It's not really like how it seems. We, things appear to be dead, but they're really not. They carry on. And um, it really showed me that I wasn't separate from my external, like um, outer space is my inner space, and everything is this, everything's interconnected. But we have this subjective experience that I think is important because everybody has an identity. Everybody is expressing themselves like uniquely one time. It only occurs one time. And the fact that everybody's in this room like, you know, you're one in a million chance. And everybody is, that, that's important, that's, that's impactful. And um, it just, that whole experience of car accident, the trip really put me down to myself. And um, like, it sucks that that had to happen for me to realize, but you know, it's all right here for us like every day, but it's just when we're ready to um, take it in when we decide to, so. Uh, yeah, that's basically all I really have to say. Thank you.